Are you telling us that your wife, while working crazy hours in a rotation in a hospital as a fourth year medical student, that in the middle of all this, she was attending drug rehab at another hospital? Is that your testimony? You're making this up literally as you go along, aren't you? We were in love. That lasted about two years. Right. And then we had the thing with the abortion. Oh, I thought you said yesterday, Mr. Durst, that in fact, her cocaine didn't really become a problem until November of 1981. That's only three months before she disappeared. Which is it? Welcome back to season two of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On Wednesday, August 17th, Robert Durst took the stand for his sixth day of testimony and second day of cross-examination. The tension in court was palpable as prosecutor John Lewin played a game of cat and mouse with a defendant he has sought to convict for years. During the first day of riveting cross-examination, John Lewin questioned Robert Durst about his tendency to lie to escape consequences and the many inconsistencies in Robert Durst's testimony and his previous statements, specifically regarding his alleged physical and emotional abuse of his first wife, Kathy Durst. To illuminate these jarring inconsistencies, Lewin confronted Durst with video evidence from their 2015 interview in New Orleans and Durst's interviews with Andrew Jarecki, director of HBO's The Jinx. In response, Robert Durst testified that in New Orleans, his untrue statements were an attempt to get a plea deal, and that during his interviews with Jarecki, he was only saying what the director told him to say. In this episode, we will focus on the most dramatic moments of John Lewin's second day of cross-examination and explore how the prosecutor's tactics threatened to upend Durst's narrative of his wife Kathy's disappearance. That's coming up after the break. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Throughout his second day of cross, John Lewin questioned Robert Durst about his history of alleged violent behavior. As we've previously reported, witness Peter Schwartz testified that, at a party, Durst once kicked him in the face, fracturing his orbital bone. Lewin returned to this incident in his cross-examination to reveal startling similarities between the way Durst characterized his altercation with Schwartz and his deadly encounter with Morris Black. It's your testimony that you did not kick Peter Schwartz while he was on the ground, correct? Correct. But you would agree that you did get angry because you didn't like the fact that you believe Peter Schwartz was, quote, the only man there, correct? Correct. And you didn't like the fact that Peter Schwartz was the only man there, Mr. Durst, because 
you're going to decide who your wife is going to associate with, correct? My wife can associate with anybody she wants. She could even associate with Peter Schwartz, but not at two o'clock in the morning. Well, so why would it matter? Why would you say you're the only guy that's here? What would it matter that he's a guy? I don't know if that's what I said. I could have told the women they should leave. Well, Mr. Durst, who's the one that said, get ready, who said the following on August 11, 2021? I said to him, it's late. You're the only one that's here. You should leave. Who said that? I said it. Andrew Jarecki didn't tell you to say that, right? No, Andrew Jarecki did not tell me to say that. So, Mr. Durst, what you just said, I don't really know, that was your sworn testimony. And your, your other part of your sworn testimony is, I want to understand this, you think that he might have hit his face on your foot. Is that correct? I think he hit his face on the coffee table. And then you said, quote, he might have hit his face on my foot. Unquote. Can you describe what you meant by that? The two of us fell down on the floor. Kathy had gone to Greece the previous summer, and we had bought a Greek rug called a Flocati. F-L-O-K-A-T-I. The Flocati is about two inches thick, and it was about four by five feet wide. It flew out from underneath our feet, and we both fell down. He hit his face on something, probably the coffee table, maybe my foot. I was wearing cowboy boots. You would agree. Um, there's a remind me. There's another struggle in this case where people fall to the ground, and the other person gets injured. Do you know what I'm referring to? No. No. Isn't that what you said happened to Morris Black? No. You said you struggled, you fell to the ground. I just want to clarify. Is it a possibility that maybe Morris's head ran into the bullet from your gun? Kind of like Peter Schwartz's face ran into your foot. Is that maybe what happened? No. At another point in the day, Lewin asked Durst seemingly innocuous questions about Kathy Durst's applications to med school. It quickly became clear that Lewin's questions threatened to unravel Durst's prior testimony that Kathy applied to many lower-tier schools and was only accepted to Albert Einstein due to Durst family connections. Mr. Durst, would you characterize your level of involvement in Kathy's medical school admissions process, were you heavily involved in that? I helped her with the various applications. And you previously testified that Kathy applied to how many schools did you say? Fifteen. And you said that Einstein was the best school and she didn't get into any of the other schools, correct? One of the top two or three. I want to show you this document. This is 
your wife, Kathy Durst, this is from an item evidence that's already been stipulated for admission. And this talks about the courses that she took. Can you go down to the bottom of that, please? List below the medical schools to which you've applied. Columbia, Cornell, Yale, Harvard, UCSF, Medical College of Pennsylvania, Boston University. These are some of the top schools in the country, correct? Correct. So Mr. Durst, when you said a moment ago that she didn't get in anywhere and that Einstein was the first or second best school she applied to, that's just not true, is it? I think it is true. So you're gonna tell me that you think that Einstein is more highly rated than Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Cornell, NYU, and UCSF Medical School? I think Albert Einstein is highly, more highly rated. I guess the answer to question is yes, I do. Well, Mr. Durst, would you agree that as an example, Harvard and Yale are probably the two biggest named colleges in the United States? I wouldn't disagree. Well, so my question is, in your answer, you made it sound as if Kathy couldn't get in anywhere, that she applied to a bunch of second-rate schools, and the only school that took her was Einstein because your dad got her in there. Do you think that that testimony is a fair representation of what actually happened? Objection mischaracterizes the testimony. So, again, my question to you is, Mr. Durst, do you think that your characterization previously, your testimony, that Kathy Durst applied to all those schools and the only one she got into was Einstein and that it was the first or second best medical school that she applied to, do you think that that is a fair characterization? Yeah. Following up on the theme of Durst's alleged domination of his wife, John Lewin continued to cross-examine Robert about his relationship with Kathy, specifically regarding Kathy's abortion. Can you explain, Mr. Durst, when you use the words, these are your words, well, if you keep the baby, you're going to get divorced from me, period. That's how you talk, isn't it? That sound like something you say? That sounds like something I'd say. Yeah, you like to say the word, period, to emphasize your point, correct? That's kind of a Bobism, right? I don't think I can answer your question. Sometimes I emphasize my point by saying period. So I guess my question to you, Mr. Durst, is can you tell me how the statement, well, if you keep the baby, you're going to get divorced from me, period. Can you tell me how that's not contentious? I don't remember it being, excuse me, contentious. You also testified, you said that once it was done, it was done, correct? Correct. And what you meant by that, that was in response to Mr. Guerin asking you, was that a very contentious part of your relationship or was it not? And when you answered, well, once it was done, it was done, what you were saying was that basically it was not a contentious part of your relationship, that Kathy accepted what you had told her to do and that you both moved on. Is that correct? Once it was done, it was done. We both moved on. Isn't though, Mr. Durst, isn't it true that in fact, not only was the, the abortion not a minor issue, it was in actuality 
the beginning of the end of any good times in your relationship. Correct? Not correct. RD 330, March 15, 2015, page 52, lines 9 through 21. This clip you're playing, when is Our interview, March 15, 2015. 299. 291. 291? By the time Kathy disappeared, you didn't feel the same way about her that you did before, right? I mean... Oh, no. I mean, Bill Bernard has it right in her quote. When she first met us, we were in love. Right. Period. No two ways about it. We were in love. That lasted about two years. Right. And then we had the thing with the abortion. Right. And that was the end of it. I don't feel that way at all. I'm surprised I said that. Well, you can't blame Mr. Jarecki for this one, correct? Correct. So, you're agreeing you said it, correct? I agree I said it. Did I give you a script in advance or tell you, here's what I would like you to say during our interview for your plea bargain? No. So, you would agree that everything you just said there came completely from your own mind, from your own mouth, from your own memory, correct? And you would also agree, Mr. Durst, that you have to admit to that. You don't have a choice because it's in front of you. It's being played to you. It's not from Jarecki. You're trapped. Like a little rat in a cage. But you're admitting it, Mr. Durst, because you don't have a choice but to admit it, correct? I don't know what I'm admitting. I have no idea what your question is. My question is, is that this is a statement that impeaches what you just said and what Mr. DeGuerin asked you about, that in essence, the abortion was not a contentious part of your relationship and that you both moved on. This statement you have just agreed is accurate and is what you said, and it states that once she had the abortion, quote, that was the end of it, correct? I am I overruled your objection. I am surprised I said your that. I do not remember feeling that at all. The abortion was before we bought the house. The first part of it was a comment and an argument. Go ahead, Mr. Durst. If you can answer. You started to answer and we couldn't hear you. The abortion was before we even bought the house in South Salem. When we were living in South Salem, we were in love. I do not think abortion was the end of our loving relationship. But you agree that's exactly what you said, correct? That's what I said. So can you explain, Mr. Durst, why is it that you said this to a deputy district attorney and two police detectives if it wasn't true? I don't know. I just felt there was something would move along. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. 
If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Lewin then built the narrative of his questioning by zeroing in on Durst's characterization of Kathy as a cocaine addict. Would you agree that you and your attorneys have emphasized Kathy's alleged heavy use of cocaine? Is that true? I think we act accurately describe Kathy's use of cocaine. And I, is it your testimony that Kathy was basically at the end some kind of cocaine addict? Is that your testimony? I'm not sure what a cocaine addict is. I guess she was pretty much addicted, yes. And wouldn't you agree that rather than being a cocaine addict, Kathy was a recreational cocaine user who was attending medical school and going to rotations during this alleged cocaine addiction? She was missing lots of classes during her cocaine class nine months or so of school. She was repeatedly missing classes and those doctors testified as much. Oh, I thought you said yesterday, Mr. Durst, that in fact, her cocaine didn't really become a problem until November of 1981. That's only three months before she disappeared. Which is it? I guess it got worse and worse over the summer. And in November of 1981, she went to Lenox Hill Hospital in an outpatient get-off-the-drugs program. By restating his assertion that Kathy attended drug rehab at Lenox Hill Hospital, Durst again stepped into a trap set by Lewin. So, Mr. Durst, you have attempted to magnify your wife's drug use to support the idea that somehow her cocaine use was the cause of her disappearance, correct? I always thought that whatever happened probably had something to do with cocaine. In fact, you testified on August 11, 2021, quote, well, there's no way you can snort as much cocaine as she was snorting and still do the various stuff that she was supposed to do. She was working in the hospital involved in patient care. That's what you testified to, right? Correct. So... Are you telling us that your wife, while working crazy hours in a rotation in a hospital as a fourth-year medical student, where she is responsible for taking care of patients, that in the middle of all this, she was attending drug rehab four to five days a week, three to four hours a day at another hospital? Is that your testimony? That's my testimony. Can you explain, Mr. Durst, does it make sense to you, would it go something like this? Doctor, I'm very sorry, I need to leave my rotation now. Um, I have drug rehab, I'm a cocaine addict. I understand I'm working with patients, dispensing medication responsible for people's lives, but I'm an addict and I need to go to my cocaine outpatient clinic. Um, it's three to four hours, so I'm gonna be gone for the next four or five hours because I got to transport back and forth. Um, does that in any way, Mr. Durst, 
forget about whether it's credible. Does that even seem possible for a medical student about to graduate? That's what she was doing. Okay. Um, are you aware that on October 1st, 1981, Kathy passed her ER rotation with good evaluation and no absences? I want you to look, Mr. Durst, at the evaluation that she has. Now we're going to read the narrative. Ms. Durst is an intelligent, caring, and hardworking student who demonstrated reliability and responsibility in patient care. Her knowledge base was not as strong as that of most of her peers and needed expansion uh, and needs expansion by the time she enters her house staff training. Her workups were of good quality and her progress notes were careful and well thought out. Her attendance in rounds and conferences should have been better, yet in the direct management of her patients, she was thorough and worked long and uncomplaining hours. Her interpersonal relations were excellent and all members of the hospital staff, with all members of the hospital staff. Her overall performance was very good. If she continues to grow, both in factual knowledge and in her clinical judgment, she should be a very good physician. Does that sound like the evaluation of a drug addict? Her attendance to rounds and conferences should have been better. So what you take from that is that because it says her attendance and rounds and conferences should have been better, does that sound like a drug addict to you? No. You're making this up literally as you go along, aren't you? No. Are you aware, Mr. Durst, that when medical students graduate from medical school, they rank the programs and the locations where they want to go. So a person might say, I want to do orthopedics at um, Harbor UCLA. And they put that, that's my number one choice. They rank that number one. And then the institutions, Harbor UCLA is going to rank the medical students. And then what happens is it goes through a match and people get assigned their residencies. You're aware of this, correct? Only what I've learned here when the doctors testify. Are you aware that your wife was already making plans to go through the match? Were you aware of that? I think she was planning on not going through the match. Hmm. Well, are you aware? Have you gone through the medical records in this case from Einstein that your attorneys have stipulated to? Have you gone through them? No. Do you know which program in the whole world of medicine that she listed as her number one choice of where she wanted to match? Any guesses? No. If I were to ask you to pick, given everything you know, the last place that she would put to match as a resident, what place would it be? I have no idea. Can we put it up, please? Mm -hmm. Rank order, number one, Mr. Durst, Lenox Hill Hospital. Oh, she was already there. Yes, as a drug addict patient? As we have previously reported, the court has accommodated Durst's hearing issues by providing a tablet on which a stenographer types an immediate transcription of the attorney's questions. 
In the last minutes of the day, Lewin questioned Durst about Kathy's alleged rehab in the form of a hypothetical. During the ensuing exchange, the tension simmering between prosecutor and defendant finally reached a boiling point. Okay, I'm going to give the following hypothetical. Yeah, yeah, just do it. Following hypothetical. Mr. Durst, I want you to assume that Kathy Durst, your wife, is going to have an interview because that's what happened. You want me to assume that Kathy Durst, what? Yeah, your wife, and she would be now Dr. Kathy Durst, is going to have an interview with her number one choice, Lenox Hill Hospital. And she's going to have an interview with them, and she's going to tell them that she really wants to join their medicine program. Can you imagine if she's asked, well, doctor, why do you want to join our program? Well, I want to say, doctors, your program is, I've been very impressed. Oh, have you worked here, Dr. Durst? No, actually, I'm a patient. I'm in your drug rehab down the hall. Um, gosh, I hope that's not going to affect my chances, will it? <laughs> Is there a more incredible thing Your Honor, that you've yes. said this entire like trial? <laughs> Mr. Durst, is it really your position that your wife chose Lenox Hill Hospital to go to rehab when that was going to be the number one program she wanted to match for her residency? Does that make sense to you at all? I think I need to congratulate you. You have just broken your personal record. You have filled up 18 lines on my tablet. And I want to congratulate you. You've set the perjury record. Your Honor, well, I'm moving from, Your Honor, I have a motion. I have a motion, Your Honor. Well, I, I will have a motion, Your Honor. Of course you will. Mr. Durst. I'm asking you, does this, any, does this in any way... I sustain the objection. Does this in any way, Mr. Durst, make any sense at all to you? Is it really your testimony that your wife would be going to drug rehab in the middle of a rotation at the very same program where she wants to work as a doctor? Does that in any way make sense to you? You're asking me to try to explain my wife. I cannot explain my wife. This is what she did. After the jury left the courtroom, Lewin apologized for his outburst, and the court adjourned for the day. Joining us now to discuss day two of John Lewin's examination of Robert Durst is reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Welcome back, Charlie. Hey, thanks for letting me be here. Charlie, tell us about how day two of Lewin's cross-examination started. It actually started with a look back. The prosecutor, John Lewin, asked Bob if he wanted to change any of his answers. And Bob gave him a bit of a nonsense answer. And so then they launched into it. And I thought that uh, what the prosecutor was trying to do today was to break Bob. I mean, he was going to go after every single instance of Bob either telling something that was contradicting prior statements that he made or that was contradicting the record. And Brittany, what were some of the highlights of the first part of Lewin's Cross for you? 
Well, Lewin returned to my favorite topic, the fact that Robert Durst knows his way around a bow saw. As I'm sure everyone remembers, at the end of the first day of cross-examination, Lewin asked Durst about a comment he made on direct when Daguerrean asked him about a typical day in Vermont. And he said, oh, we'd wake up early, we'd go to the store and then chop wood for the fire with the bow saw that I've always had, not a weird thing to have. So Lewin had asked him about that answer because he said, you know, you have a problem with bow saws in this case. And today he returned to this in the context of asking Bob if he's deliberately inserting information to portray himself in a better light to the jury. And of course, Durst denied it. And then, Charlie, we came to a discussion of Peter Schwartz and his testimony. Take us through what you heard in that line of questioning. The incident with Peter Schwartz, where Bob comes storming into an apartment, Peter Schwartz is among the people there. He's the only man. He's sitting on the floor. Bob comes in and kicks him in the face. In Bob's recounting of this incident, it sounded like Schwartz must have attacked my foot with his face. Yeah, I can't remember whether I said it on the podcast or in a sidebar conversation among the three of us, but Lewin used that line that I had used, which was, did Peter Schwartz's face hit your boot the way that Morris Black's head hit your bullet? Yeah, no, I thought of you as soon as, <laughs> as, soon as he asked that. He must be channeling our podcast. And then there was a lot of discussion of Bob's propensity to humiliate Kathy and dominate her through that humiliation. Brittany, would you tell us a little about how you heard that line of questioning? Yeah, that was a really tough part of the day, I think both for Lewin and for Bob. Bob is trying to suggest that he was a supportive husband. He said that he wasn't just proud of Kathy's accomplishments, but that he would brag about them. And yet, you know, we've seen a lot of evidence to the contrary. There was that one moment where Lewin showed a report card from Kathy's medical school, and he pointed out, do you see that she had some classes where she had honors? And Bob said, I'm just seeing that she passed. And Lewin asked, are you, are you deliberately missing those or, or what's going on? You know, that was a really great moment of two people looking at the same document and seeing two totally different things. So the jury kind of has to wonder what's going on there. And then, of course, it got really heated at the end of the day when Lewin pointed out that Lenox Hill Hospital, the, the hospital where Durst said that Kathy was in rehab, was her top choice for where she wanted to be placed as a doctor. And he didn't really have a good answer for how to square those two things. And the idea, as Lewin put it, that a woman who is achieving this level of success in medical school is spending three or four hours a day, five days a week in rehab and at a hospital where she wants to do her residency is just preposterous. And yet at the end of the day, Bob Durst just let it sit there. Oh, I, I think it's amazing to look at Kathy's academic record because she was doing very well. And even though she had essentially gotten incompletes in three different uh, rotations, by December of 1981, she had made up two of them and was in line to graduate as the dean uh, has testified. And the match letter, the, the letter of recommendation that was written for Kathy was written by the same administrator who had chastised her for missing some of those rotations. Uh, so she had really turned things around and it contradicts, you know, Bob's whole story that Kathy in 1981 was just some cocaine addled near dropout. So Charlie, Take us through your experience being in the courtroom of that 
terse exchange between Lewin and Durst. If I could uh, continue my boxing metaphor, Bob was in a crouch with, with his two gloves up in front of his face and just taking the blows and trying not to lose any ground. And, and I think his obstinacy really got under Lewin's skin. In the end, at the very end of the day, that yes, Bob was successful in, in antagonizing uh, the prosecutor. Absolutely. It was Lewin's last question of the day. He's asking Bob to explain why Kathy would choose Lenox Hill Hospital as the place to attend a rehab program, given that it was the same hospital where she wanted to work as a doctor. And when he finally gets to the end of this long question, Bob comes back with, I want to congratulate you for setting a record, a personal record. You filled up 18 lines on my tablet. And Lewin comes back with, I want to congratulate you for setting the perjury record. And Durst lawyers stand up. Chesnoff calls for a mistrial. It was wild. Yeah, what a way to end the day. Charlie, I hear you about Lewin being provoked into a couple of instances yesterday. His line about 18 counts of perjury that Bob is committed as a record, and also his line about Bob being like a rat in a cage. I, I think those were not acts of strategy, but acts of belligerent instinct by Lewin. But Durst's reaction to each of those instances, I remember Bob had a very bemused smile that he's had on his face a, a number of times in the course of these proceedings, as if he's really entertaining himself and is enjoying all of the drama around him. And as someone in the courtroom, how do you think that the jurors are looking at Bob when they see that self-satisfied grin on his face? Even now, in, in our where we've passed the third month mark of this trial, the jury is really paying attention. Uh, they're taking notes. They they all go out to lunch together. They hang out together. This is a pretty cohesive group, and uh, you know they've gotten a lot of information in, in these many weeks. So. They seem to be very uh, cognizant of the currents that are running through. Now, look, both sides have gotten off some zingers. Uh, and certainly when uh, John Lewin made those statements, you know, eight, 18 counts of perjury versus Bob's 18 lines of copy on his computer screen, the, the jury laughed. But I don't think it was a laugh with Bob or against Lewin. I, I think they recognize the irony of what was going on here. How could Bob think that anybody believes him right now? Absolutely. And before we wrap up today, we just want to address an error in one of our last episodes. On direct examination with Dick DeGarren, Robert Durst did address the meaning of his line in the infamous bathroom audio, quote, there it is, you're caught, end quote. He testified that he was referring to writing the cadaver note rather than, as many viewers believed at the time, admitting to killing three people. All right, Charlie and Brittany, thanks again for being here. I'm looking forward to us picking this up again after day seven of Robert Durst's testimony. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Molly Miller. It was edited by Molly Miller and Alexis Bartolo, with help from Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Molly Miller, Alexis Bartolo, and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.